welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is week 15, Cornetto Crash Course. Oh man, I should have brought some ice cream today. Yeah, this is a, a, a yummy week. We're talking about the Edgar Wright's Three Flavors Cornetto Trilogy. Right. Uh, so named because even though the stories don't run together, uh, each each film features a different flavor of Cornetto ice cream. Um, and we'll get into the meeting of what Cornetto is. Um, it's not super deep. It's just a fun bit of trivia, but <laughs> we're, we're going to bury the lead on it. So you keep listening. Yeah. Um, so but first of all, let's just talk a little bit about who Edgar Wright is. Edgar Wright is a British filmmaker. Um, all of these films are very London-centric, uh, I guess you could call them. Uh, he's about 42 right now, so he's still in the prime of his career, and he's got a new movie coming out, which is kind of the impetus for this episode. Um, he went to college at Bournemouth and Poole College of Art, which I think is called something else right now, but... Uh, in 1994, he released his first feature-length film, which is called A Fistful of Fingers, which was, as the uh, title might suggest, a parody on Western films, um, which got him a little bit of attention and eventually got him to direct uh, some episodes of the show Spaced, which, uh, which was written by Simon Pegg and kind of started their uh, now career-long friendship and uh, work together. And uh, recently he kind of, he, so he created the Cornetto trilogy and also um, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, uh, which is kind of his, his only kind of main mainstream film work. Uh, he's done other music videos and stuff like that. And there's also this weird thing where he keeps being slated to, uh, to work on films and then getting replaced by other directors uh, for example, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which was eventually directed by Brad Bird and Ant-Man. Essentially, it was just reabsorbed by the uh, Marvel Universe. Um, so so the film that, that uh, Edgar Wright was planning, which was planned before Ant-Man was slated to be part of the MCU, kind of fell by the wayside once once Marvel woke up to their their MCU aspirations. Yeah, MCU being Marvel's cinematic universe. Um, okay, so that's a little bit about our director this week. Uh, Alex, you want to just kind of give us a brief overview of which of what the three specific movies that we'll be talking about are? Yeah, so uh, the Cornetto trilogy all started uh, back in 2004 when Shaun of the Dead came out. Um, it's, it's a mixture of a British comedy film and... Uh, kind of a zombie genre horror as the name implies and and just kind of smushed those two together and it worked really well it was super popular still is and after that success um edgar wright went ahead and started to plan out the rest of this thematic trilogy where he could do these big uh big productions with him simon pegg and nick frost uh nick frost and simon pegg being the two lead actors in each of the films um, yeah, and also uh, each of these films are written by Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg. Um, 
So after Shaun of the Dead became really popular, Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright decided that they could create a trilogy of films that weren't connected uh, through their story, but rather connected through um, the themes tackled in the film and the different stylistic uh, elements that were used to present the story. So we'll talk about all that today. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the meat of this episode and uh, super interesting and it plays really well on screen. But uh, coming back around to that bit of trivia I promised, uh, Cornetto was uh, Wright's hangover cure in college, so it just kind of ended up in the film as a joke, and then it became a running gag, and then it became the name of the trilogy after um, an interview Wright gave. Yep. So our second film in the, quote, uh, trilogy is Hot Fuzz in from 2007. Uh, this was a buddy. This is a buddy cop film. It has a little bit of traces of uh, westerns in it and stuff. And another thing that we'll see through all of these is that Edgar Wright like knows his movies, um, and he is not shy about you know taking those influences and incorporating them into his own work. Oh, for sure, mountains upon mountains of references and um, homages and uh, tricks and tips take it from here and there, put into each of them. Yeah, so just to kind of, you know, put Edgar Wright's cinematic influences into perspective, a couple of years ago he had an article online where uh, him and I think a journalist kind of went through and he made a list of his top 1,000 films. So anyone who has a top 1,000 films out of all the films that they've seen, um, Definitely, definitely has a thing for movies, and we can see that in his work. Yeah, I'm not even sure if I've seen a thousand movies. That's intense. Um, but moving on. Yeah, that on. I can remember anyway. Yeah. Oh, for sure. No, I definitely don't have a thousand ranked. Right. Uh, I don't think I have a hundred ranked. But anyway, moving on. The last one, uh, the last member of the Cornetto trilogy is. Um, oh, sorry. The Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy is the proper <laughs> name, um, is The World's End from 2013. Uh, it's a six-year gap, but that's because he did uh, Scott Pilgrim in 2010, 2011. Um, so, so he took time off to do a North American film and then came back to, to England to do a, uh, another British film. Uh, and it's a genre sci-fi movie. It's all about aliens. Uh, but again, it talk, tackles uh, the same themes as the other two movies does, and it has the same brand of humor built into it. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to dig into each of these films now, but I think probably the meat of this episode will be in the overall notes. First of all, because Hot Fuzz and The World's End have some big spoilers that take up most of the film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And also because most of the stuff that we want to talk about are things that run through all of the films and are just kind of, you know, have specific instances that happen in each film rather than individual points for each movie. And and that's how it was designed. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, um, each of the three films is designed to be part of a trilogy in that they, they tackle the same themes and feature the same uh, actors and carry the same sense of uh, visual comedy and comedic timing. Um, not that they, they carry one big plot throughout each of them. Although I'm sure um, someone could cook up some elaborate plot in which 
all three three movies are connected in the same universe. Hashtag right some cinematic universe. I don't really want to lose um, uh, that much time of my life to look up those those theories, although it does sound fun. I just know that's a rabbit hole. I'll, I'll get sucked down. But I'm sure it's one corner of the internet where uh, people are coming up with ways to connect Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. And I'm sure it's completely doable. Oh, yeah. Um, well, on that note, let's dive into Shaun of the Dead and talk about that film. Yeah, let's do that. And uh, just to give you a brief overview of what it's specifically about, uh, it covers the story of um, kind of a young to middle-aged guy kind of treading water in his life and his best friend, played by Nick Frost, the main guy is played by Simon Pegg, um, is holding him down and he's having trouble with his job, his family, um, and his his uh, romantic relationship, his girlfriend. Um, and then everything kind of falls apart, set to the backdrop of a zombie apocalypse. And the question is, will Sean, obviously our main character, um, rise to the occasion? Will, will he be able to uh, uh, grow up in a sense, which is definitely a theme we're going to see in all three of these films. Will he grow up, rise to the occasion? And uh, as he writes on a whiteboard near uh, the 30 minute mark of the film, get his life together. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing. I probably got that wrong, <laughs> but it, no, it's, yeah, it's something close to that. Pretty much it. Um, and I think, I think the first scene in this film is a perfect kind of, in, it sets up the type of movie that we're watching as far as um, comedy. So we start on a shot of, Simon Pegg, Sean in the film, um, drinking a beer. And then we find out he's talking to his girlfriend. They're like about to break up. And uh, she's talking about how his best friend is, um, you know, so immature and holding him back. And he needs to not be hanging out with him so much. And then she goes, no offense. And the camera pans over and we see um, Nick Frost's character just right there. Um, And then they're all talking. And then he's like, well, what about your friends? And he says, no offense. And we pan over and their friends are right there. So we're kind of like this this idea that basically if it's not in the frame, it doesn't exist until the the audience has seen it. Um, so it's just kind of this this thing where Edgar Wright is going to we, we know that Edgar Wright is going to be playing us from now on um, in terms of using using the screen to show us only exactly what he wants us to see and then throwing things in in unexpected ways uh, for comedic effect. Right, right. And that's, I mean, that's one of the big jobs of the director. Um, and, and he does it so well. Um, and I feel like most of this podcast is probably just going to be me saying Edgar Wright does this so well. But he right. does, he does. He, does. He, he controls what you're going to see within the frame um, and, and uses those reveals for comedic timing, which is brilliant. And, um, it also feels distinctly British. Uh, I'm not sure if that's because I've seen it in three British films in a row or, um, right. because American films tend to be, um, kind of more filmed improv than they are, uh, cinematic, uh, humor, but, but it, it feels like that. It feels like awkward, um, situational comedy. Uh, played through this control of the frame. 
Yeah, and there's a video essay that we have that we'll post a link to on the blog um, that talks about how Edgar Wright, where where other directors would use dialogue to kind of get a joke across by literally telling us what the joke is, Edgar Wright has a way of showing us with blocking and um, and framing and editing and all of these techniques that film has uh, that he can use and using that to tell the joke, which is more impactful because we're kind of experiencing it rather than being told it. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that we definitely have to talk about um, in Shaun of the Dead, especially because that's where it started, but it carries on through the other ones, uh, other two films in different ways, is the mix of comedy um, and some other big genre theme. So in Shaun of the Dead, it's comedy and zombie horror, which mix together. Um, and it's definitely something that's been done before, but it's done really, really well by Edgar Wright. Yeah, one of the really interesting things about Shaun of the Dead and the way that, like we were talking about, we're mixing you know, a British, almost rom-com kind of feel with horror, which are kind of the, the two most opposite genres you can think of almost. Um, but it's done in a way where um, each, like the inclusion of each genre kind of heightens the other one. So at any point where there is like a lot of mortal danger from the zombies in this movie, there's someone does something ridiculous to bring kind of the personal tensions to the head um, and just the backdrop of, you know, apocalyptic life or death situation. And, oh my gosh, why are you taking a phone call right now from your friend? You need to grow up and be more mature. Makes makes both situations more hilarious. Um, yeah. And Edgar Wright is really good at knowing, you know, at what point uh, in the, you know, up and down emotionally of the horror and the comedy to intersplice the other one just to accent each, each in their own way. Yeah, and the way the horror is brought around is, is pretty brilliant. Um, like, for instance, at the start where they're, they're, where Sean finally realizes something is going on, um, or I think right before it, I, he's pretty dense, I'll be honest. But yeah. uh, for instance, here you can hear, uh, you can hear an example of, of how this, this uh, exposition is done on the TV, which if you, if you just shot straight, it'd be really boring. But the way Edgar Wright does it uh, lends comedy and interest to uh, something that would just be kind of slow horror exposition otherwise. Although no one official is prepared to comment, religious groups are calling it Judgment Day. There's panic on the streets of London. As an increasing number of reports of serious attacks on people who are literally being eaten alive. And, you know, that's that's a great example of a moment that is um, is literally a mix of horror and comedy. Um, it's being delivered in a really funny way, but technically it's horror and the emotions that uh, Sean is experiencing, and you can see it on the screen if you watch the movie, and you should watch the movie, is um, is kind of like fear and worry at it. But you can't well, help Sean's but laughing. Well, Sean's not scared at this point because he's so, like you said, dense. Yeah, he's still pretty dense. I, the I would like to project some feelings of fear on his face in this scene. It's pretty blank, though. Yeah, 
And the, the varying degrees of denseness in both Simon Pegg and Nick's Frost characters through these three films are something we should talk about also. Yeah, because they change. Um, but but those, the, the characters themselves kind of help blend the two as well because they might be scared. Um, and when I say the two, I mean comedy and horror again. Because uh, they might be scared going through this, but they can't help acting like idiots um, over the course of the movie. And I don't mean like idiots like um, cracking jokes. I mean um, doing dumb things that put them in danger. And in really funny ways, too. Like when uh, Nick Frost's character takes a phone call while they're surrounded by zombies and trying not to... Um, Attract attention. Attract attention to themselves. And he just takes a phone call. And on one hand, this should be terrifying because, oh my gosh, now the zombies know they're there. But on the other hand, like, what the hell, Ed? Like, it's it's funny. Yeah. Once, once you, uh, you know, you understand that this character has been holding his, uh, his mm. friend, uh, Sean, back a little bit throughout his life. And this is a big moment where that boils to a head. Um, so then you get another added level uh, in the scene of drama blending together and it, it's just really exciting to watch uh, one scene being able to tackle all those things at once and honestly any scene should be able to tackle multiple uh, moods at once or maybe I'm going off the rails here I don't know no I think I think you have a point that any time that you can incorporate you know two different moods and kind of create a more layered experience for the audience because we're keeping track of, you know, the terror of the literal situation and the humor in the contrast of the way that the characters are experiencing it. So Ed, as a character, just talking about the the differences in denseness, um, basically Ed is totally oblivious and completely immature and he we never really get the sense that he grasps what's going on. Like he's so self-centered that even if they're, you know, trying to get away, he's thinking about, you know, what's the more sexy car to be driving at that specific moment. Um, and, uh, whereas, uh, Simon Pegg's character, Sean has, uh, we get the sense he has a little bit more of an arc at the beginning. He's, uh, just as, you know, kind of, immature and stuff but he has a job and he has a relationship and he's trying to keep it all together and we see him start to feel to be feeling the weight of his responsibilities and the fact that he has to start stepping up to the plate and throughout the film we're watching him as he grows and as he um, begins to realize that he is the leader and he has to do these certain things and he still messes them up um, which is funny but we get the sense that he's at least trying Nick Frost character has a little bit of an arc at the end, but he's mostly there to uh, be the antagonist to Simon Pegg's growth as a character. Right. Not right. intentionally, but that's just kind of the function that he serves for the film. Yeah, he's kind of like this um, weight hanging around uh, uh, Sean's neck as he, as he tries to progress through um, both trying to survive and um, get his life together in a bigger sense of uh, of the phrase other than just, you know, keeping his life from the zombies. And that's not to say, none of this is to say either that um, there aren't really impactful moments in the movie where uh, Edgar Wright uh, tones down the comedy because 
you know, something really big is going on. Um, for instance, there's a couple of big deaths that we won't specify uh, throughout the course of the film, um, obviously, because it's a zombie movie. The, and the stakes have to stay high because it's a zombie flick as well. But um, whenever one of those deaths rolls around, we might come into it with some comedy and leave quickly with some comedy. But um, Edgar Wright isn't afraid to linger in the moment and let that weight and the weight that um, our protagonist, Sean, feels in that moment kind of linger on us and in the audience as well and and just like a little reminder as we're going through like what is really a really funny movie about trying to survive a zombie apocalypse um as we're going through this zombie romp that you know there there are still stakes here there are still um big personal developments big personal losses happening over the course of this movie yeah, yeah, and I that's one of the things that I really like about these movies is the fact that the drama is still infused in there. So we have those moments where everyone is feeling the weight of the situation and Sean is, you know, learning to deal with different things like how to keep his relationship together, his relationship with his stepdad, his relationship with his mom, and all of these things and we take those those moments to um resolve those issues and talk through those issues and it's not just you know, a story about two man babies who go through this crazy experience and don't learn anything at the end. Like we actually learn stuff through it and we, we learn how the characters grow. Um, and we're going to see that in all three of these films, I think, um, in different ways. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's one of the reasons these movies resonate with us and stick with us over the course of the years. So let's, let's go into our next movie now, uh, hot fuzz, which is, a different movie in a satisfying way, but also satisfyingly similar to Shaun of the Dead. And do you want to uh, set that one up for us, Jonathan? Yarp. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I had to. We had um, to. So Hafaz, I'll just like in the broadest sense, because this one and The World's End both have spoilers. So we're going to try and talk about uh, at least the first half of both of them. Um, but in general, Hot Fuzz is again, a British comedy or if you will, Brit flick, uh, kind of put together with another genre, which this time happens to be a buddy cop movie and kind of a mystery crime thriller. Um, so what happens is we get, we start off learning about this, uh, police inspector from London named Nicholas Angel. He's kind of top of his class. He he is the best on the force. And basically his higher-ups decide that he is too good for the force and he's making everyone else look bad. So they send him off to the country, to this little town where he can't, um, you know, it doesn't matter how good he is because there's nothing really to do. It's just a little, a little town. But he ends up getting partnered with Nick Frost's character, who's named Danny Butterman. Uh, and Danny is kind of, he's a cop because his dad is chief of the police force, but he doesn't really do anything. All he does is, you know, watch buddy cop movies uh, like Bad Boys 2 and Point Break and all these action movies. And that's kind of where he gets his idea of policemanning and what being cool is all about. Uh, so he really is clueless and... Simon Pegg in this one is the straight man. He's very regimented, very strict on himself, uh, married to the force as 
they talk about in the movie. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a mix of Nick Frost's character learning how to, you know, play by the book and Simon Pegg's character learning how to relax a little bit um, through their, this investigation that they have to go through together. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because the, the, the two leads, their characters change a lot. Um, but those themes, like we were talking about before, kind of, you know, they hold true. Just because uh, Sergeant Angel's, um, Sergeant Angel is a very regimented, put together guy, um, and he knows how to be a really good police officer, um, doesn't mean that he has his life together. You know, he ends up getting kicked off his force by his coworkers. His um, his girlfriend dumps him, um, or actually, he dumps her because he yeah. decides he doesn't have time for a girlfriend. Right? That's it. Um, so he all he has time to do is is water a, a peace lily plant that he carries with him everywhere. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're so low maintenance. Yeah, he essentially he doesn't have anything going on in his life besides his. Um, besides his job and when he moves to the country his job even seems to fall apart so he's definitely uh, another character who has to get it together um, it, he's starting from a different place than Sean did but he the place he's trying to get to is very similar um, and and much in the same way but not quite Danny is um, less of a, a of a weight around um Nick Angel's uh, neck and, and more in a weird way kind of a guide um, to loosening up and seeing that other things in his life um, but also a protege matter. at the same time yeah yeah he, he teaches him he shows him the ropes um, and kind of starts to groom Danny into being um, uh, a better cop it's uh, in, in the first one in Shaun of the Dead they kind of have a they definitely have a best friends from college relationship. And in this yeah. one, it feels almost like a, a big brother, little brother kind of relationship, like definitely still best friends, yeah. but you know, one who's definitely kind of guiding and setting an example for another one. Um, so you, you have and the still same learning kind of, something from, from the process, even yeah. though he's the guide. Yeah. You still kind of have those, uh, pseudo similar arcs going through and, uh, Danny definitely has an arc in this one, whereas um, in in the other one he maybe doesn't. He yeah, he does a little <laughs> bit at the end, but <laughs> but not much. Not much to speak of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it it definitely does that, and uh, it does the same thing with um, mixing comedy and another genre. Yeah, because like like we were talking about before, Edgar Wright knows his movies, so he knows you know all of the the action movie and mystery movie tropes that have been used in films for as long as those kind of films have been around. Um, and uh, basically he funnels all of that into Danny who has seen all these movies. And at some point we see his movie room and it's just like, you know, racks and racks of films. Um, and so Danny is kind of, you know, the one who's like, have you ever fired two guns while jumping through the air? And, uh, and kind of like all these romantic ideas of what a cool city police officer does. Um, and all, the, the whole time, uh, Nick is just saying, uh, no, that's not, that's not how real police work works. But what we really do is sit here and we pull people over for traffic tickets most of the time. Um, 
and stuff like that. So, so he's kind of, you know, setting us up for a more realistic, um, kind of look at the police force. And we get, we get this, we even get these little, these montages of just paperwork. It's like the most exciting paperwork that you'll ever watch <laughs> yeah. in a movie. Yeah. Um, but they're Edgar Wright style montages and that makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. But, but basically as Danny is kind of bringing up all of these action movie tropes and Nick is saying, no, that's not really how this works. Edgar Wright is bringing those tropes into our mind and later on in the film, which we don't want to talk about too much right now, but he pays off every one of those things that Danny has um, has brought up, and Edgar Wright definitely makes it the um, the entertaining ride that that we were all hoping for. Yeah, and uh, we we definitely get a lot of action, um, especially I think like the last thirty minutes of this movie is just straight action, and it's amazing. Um, Definitely super satisfying, fulfills on everything that's promised throughout the movie. But again, with that really intense action, we have uh, that that comedy blend throughout, where everything is really funny. Um, not only, not like the characters are cracking jokes, but um, through the camera work, the way that the reveals are done, like we were talking in Shaun of the Dead, um, is is super similar. You know, you have like stuff appearing from out of frame, like a phone sticking out next to a um a character's face or i think in this one it's a slice of cake yeah there's cake um, although i'm sure there was a phone in there somewhere because it's not an edgar wright movie unless somebody sticks a phone into yeah. the frame um <laughs> which is good i like that i like that uh signature um and i definitely think that comedy and action are a little it's it's a more explored blend so i think this was a little easier to pull off but that's not to diminish the the skill that it took to um to bring them together so seamlessly so that it feels like one world and one mood throughout um like one layered mood instead of like one scene you feel like you're watching a comedy movie one scene you feel like you're watching an action movie like it's it's definitely the same consistency um, throughout, you just have the blend of comedy and action. Yeah, and and like we were saying, Edgar Wright knows his movies, so he knows how you know comedy works, and he knows how the mystery suspense movie works, and he knows to put them together. And he also kind of blends his movies in a pretty self-aware way, like you know the fact that Danny is always watching movies, and there's actually a scene where Danny shows Nick. Uh, two of his favorite movies, like we were saying, uh, Bad Boys 2 and Point Break, which literal clips of them are in the movie. And um, those are actually, you know, payoffs or uh, setups to things that are paid off later on, like we were talking about. And in all of these movies, Edgar Wright is really good at um, taking everything that was kind of set up in the first, the first uh, third or half of the movie and paying them off again in the last third or quarter of the movie. Um, so basically, by the time the movie is over, you've connected so many dots in your brain that the entire film feels like a tapestry that was intentionally created and every thread was put in there on purpose so that when you go back and watch it again, and we've talked about movies that have a high rewatch value and these definitely fall into that category, um, as you're watching the first part of that movie, you're like, okay, I know where this is going. Even just like 
one line, like certain lines will will just kind of, you know, feel like a one off thing or like a silly thing that someone who doesn't know what they're talking about is saying. And then later on, it comes back. And this happens in The World's End as well, uh, which we'll talk about. And we're going to wait till overall notes to kind of, you know, give specifics on these because, you know, clearly the payoffs are going to be spoilers. Um, So we'll talk about all that in overall notes once the people who we assume have seen the movies are still listening. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So let's go on and let's talk about uh, The World's End um, from 2013 and the last film in the Cornetto trilogy. Um, And just a brief setup about what that is about. So The World's End covers the story of five friends, the main two, um, being played by Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, of course. Uh, Simon Pegg plays uh, Gary King and Nick Frost plays Andy. Um, and a bit of a role reversal on this one. Um, Nick Frost's character is the guy who um, seems to have his life together and has a big fancy job and stuff. And uh, Simon Pegg's character, Gary King, um, is more of a screw up. Like he's definitely at a low point starting in the film. Um, Living in the past. Yeah. In fact, the first uh, scene of the film is a flashback by 43-year-old Gary of the first um, of their first attempt at the Golden Mile when they're in high school when they right when they graduate uh, high school these five friends um, and the the story of the movie is the story of Gary King trying to get his five friends uh, back together and they're now all in their 40s um, early middle age you know trying to get them back together to finish this golden mile. And the golden mile is the series of 12 pubs in their hometown. And, uh, it's, it's a pub crawl. Essentially you, you try to drink one pint at every pub and that's 12 pints is a lot, obviously. Yeah. Um, so and now, now they're not, you know, as youthful and, uh, Nick Frost character doesn't even drink anymore. So it's kind of this ridiculous and self-centered thing for Gary to do. Um, but all of his friends kind of go along with it just because, you know, old time's sake and the fact that Gary is very convincing, sometimes connivingly so, to get them all yeah. in, in on this. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's um, of course, you know, like in the other two films, there's, there's a big genre twist in this one. And this one, it has a sci-fi twist. I don't know if we want to explain too much about that in the pre-spoiler section. Yeah, um, because it's a pretty satisfying reveal if you haven't seen it. And if you haven't seen it, what are you doing? Go watch this movie, <laughs> um, and then come back to this so that we can just say what it is. Yeah. So this film has you know a lot of the things we've been talking about, but one of the bigger elements, um, technically, in the way that this film is presented, is foreshadowing. So, like you said, the first several minutes of the film are a flashback to this first pub crawl. They go to these 12 pubs that all have very interesting names. Um, And uh, basically, the things that happened in that first time, in that that flashback, happen again in a different way with a more, you know, exaggerated, with the twist thrown in and um, with all these things. But... Like, you can see the genesis of 
you know, the actions that happen at each pub ha- from the uh, from the flashback, and even just the names of the pubs kind of are a little bit of foreshadowing. Um, and it's this this one was really fun to watch after you've seen it and watch through for all of the things that are coming up that are set up at the beginning that seem super innocuous until the the second half of the movie when they get paid off again. Right, right. Even trying to, like, you know, for instance, um, trying to spot uh, the marmalade sandwich in the opening five minutes of the film um, the second time through. And you'll know what that is once you watch it. I'm, I don't feel like I'm giving anything away. Or right. um, trying to figure out what each of the um, pub names mean. Because um, they, they have... They're essentially echoing the actions that happen in each of the pubs. Um, Whether it be uh, the world's end, the titular last pub, or um, the first post, which that, I feel like that's a giveaway. That's the first bar of the the, cold mile. It's the first one they go to. Um, But, you know, each of them, it gets a little more complicated from there. It's it's interesting to watch, and some of the matches are really funny, and some of them are really dramatic. Um, And some of them I needed to look up because I didn't quite get them. But... Right. guess i'm just not as smart as edgar wright i'm okay there's a, with that uh, there's um, a special feature on the blu-ray if anyone has that that literally walks through each of the pubs and tells you what the name means and shows you a couple other signs that um are kind of foreshadowing and stuff like that uh so if you have the blu-ray check that out yeah and i think i think one of the biggest things i learned this week because um, we're always trying to learn things here in the filmlings is that if you're watching an Edgar Wright film and you see something and you go, Hmm, I wonder if that's on purpose. The answer is yes, yes. it is. <laughs> it is on purpose. Always. Um, well, just, more accurately, the answer is yarp. We'll, we'll humor you. Um, but yeah, but yeah, for sure. He just plans so much of it. Um, he plans so much of, uh, these movies out to the point where there's no, or at least there, I can't notice any loose ends. Um, or I have to go online to that one section of the internet where people nitpick everything, um, which I guess I, by that I mean the entire internet. Right. Um, <laughs> for people to like start putting up plot holes, and I'm like, really? You noticed that? You cared? Um, because watching watching an Edgar Wright movie to me always feels like one of those like really um, complicated domino setups um, where it like goes through like loop-de-loops and like towers and stuff and then it knocks over this big field of what looked just looked like dominoes to reveal like this big picture of like the queen of england made out of dominoes um and at the end Keep it just all domino on. <laughs> there you go <laughs> it spells out um cheesy pop culture pop posters um but but yeah that's definitely the the feeling you get and um, he's he's been fairly straightforward about putting that effort into his movies to make sure everything's connected um, and doing the foreshadowing on these films and he, he doesn't just do that alone he works with Simon Pegg because Simon Pegg helps write these films and obviously you know is a big part of these movies he, he's always the lead right which is great as far as working relationship goes and which is great as far as you know especially having your lead actor involved in those decisions because then uh, you know your actor isn't 
trying to guess, you know, what's my motivation in this scene or what, what do I need to, how do I present this or something? Because he is super ingrained in all the decisions that are happening. And I'm sure Nick Frost is pretty close in all that too, since all three of them are involved in all of these films also. Um, and there's other actors that Edgar Wright uses a lot. He's one of those directors that has, you know, kind of a pet cast. Um, so, you know, Martin Freeman shows up in all these films, Bill Nye's and several of them, uh, and several other actors. Um, and, you know, we've talked about before how building that group of people that you can work with and work with well kind of helps helps each person grow and the whole production grow each time you work with them. Yeah. And plus, let's not forget that they're British and there's like 15 comedy actors in the entirety of Britain. So, you know. Obviously, they're all going to end up working on the you same You got to utilize them. <laughs> you, you know, the um, working relationships just make it easier. Yeah. And I also want to talk about, you know, the dramatic elements in The the World's End because this film actually goes to some pretty deep places. Uh, you know, the whole premise being that Gary King is an alcoholic who is totally living in his high school world. Like, he has not grown out of... Uh, senior year of high school, Gary King. Um, and that's, that's the whole point of the movie is that this is just one big kind of narcissistic, uh, adventure for him to go on to relive his high school days because that we get the idea that that's where he peaked and nothing better than that has ever happened. He actually says that at the beginning of the film. Um, you know, after we finished this pub crawl, we felt like the world could never get better than this. And it never did. Um, so that's kind of everyone else, all his other friends have moved on and gotten jobs and lives and all this stuff except for him. And now he's dragging them back. So he in this film is the weight on everyone else, kind of in the way that Nick Frost character was in Shaun of the Dead. Um, and like we were saying, even though we've got, you know, ridiculous, you know, sci-fi tropes going on and comedy and all this stuff, we still take those moments to say, okay, we're dealing with some real issues here and, you know, there is progress that needs to be made and we see the characters go through that. And all of these other things kind of culminate at the end when there's kind of this uh, philosophical showdown between a certain entity and the uh, some of the friends who make it to the world's end. Spoiler alert, they, they do make it to the world's end. <laughs> um but yeah, they, there's kind of this, you know, back and forth about, you know, the, and, and, and like we were saying with all of these, there's kind of the, the overarching theme of the characters who are going through these situation is trying to find this balance between, you know, having a youthful spirit, but also being able to man up and take responsibility for the things you have to take responsibility for, because, you know, we all have to grow up, our responsibilities get more and more. Um, and we have to take on those responsibilities and do them maturely while still not losing kind of this joy for life that we had when we were younger. Um, so all of these characters are going through the same journey, trying to get to the same place, finding that balance, uh, but they're coming from different places. And I think that that's uh, a really cool way to like give a wider range of your audience who are coming from those different spheres of uh of mindset and stuff like that um and 
everyone can find some way to identify with the characters in these movies and realize that we we're all on that journey in one way or another. Yeah. And, um, in a way it's kind of different. It's, it's kind of three examples of finding a way to do that from three very different characters. Um, so not just taking responsibility, actually six. Yeah, you're right. Um, Although not all six take responsibility. Um, That's true. But but you can see, like, you can even see yeah. in Shaun of the Dead how Ed, like, should be taking this journey, even if he isn't. He's, like, the example of what not to do, and you can still learn from that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, it also, um, something that I got from the films is that it's not just about um, growing up, but finding... Uh, kind of your own way to grow up and learn how to take care of these responsibilities because each of the films also has this running theme of kind of rejecting conformity or um, that that blasé hive mind of you know that you sometimes see in adulthood where everybody does the same thing um, and, and we'll, we'll dive into the specifics of that uh, in each film in the overall section because to really dive into that you have to dive into some of the spoilers um, which you can't quite do but it, it definitely is a complex theme and uh, the fact that they get to um, return to it over three films um, with three different sets of characters I think makes it a really interesting exploration of that theme um, because it, it's very rare that you get that from like the same um, I would say this is actually pretty much unique. You know, same director, same set of care or same set of actors, probably the same set of crew, uh, making three unconnected movies, um, plot-wise, all dealing with the same themes, um, which is which is super interesting. Because if they, let's say they were connected, let's say it was about a guy who. Um, you know what, I'm not going to go to the specifics yeah. of that, but let's say they were all somehow connected in three ways. If the same character had to take the same journey, three movies in a row in the same trilogy, we would be bored senseless. Um, yeah. And also really confused. We'd be like, why did you just regress? You just figured this out in this in movie one. Why are you regressing in movie two? But instead, we get to go back over these the same theme from you know three or six, depending on how you look at it, different viewpoints over the course of these movies um, with the same, you know, supportive creative cast uh, and crew behind it. Yeah, and the, um, the, the visual casing of each one is different. So, you know, not only is it a fun uh, or a, a useful kind of um, character study, but each one is just fun, especially for people who enjoy specific genres of film it's fun to see how edgar wright you know kind of wraps each one in a different genre with the zombies or the um mystery or the sci-fi and uh seeing you know all those little things just for people who enjoy movies and entertainment and he he does each one of them so well uh while you know putting meaning into it it's not just uh, a zombie comedy that just exists to parody zombie movies. It has its own uh, filmic themes and stuff like that. And that's what we talk about a lot on this podcast is that as long as you can put something in your movie that has 
a thematic viewpoint and something to say, that's what makes a good movie rather than just, you know, oh, I love zombie movies. Let's make a zombie movie that's about zombies, you know? Right. That's kind of boring. Um, but, you know, you could almost say that with this, um, between the similarities and differences of these films, that they're all the same brand of ice cream, just in different flavors with different wrappers. If you say so, Alex. Well, with that, let's get into our overall notes and spoilers. So, as we've been saying, if you have not seen these films, uh, you can pause the podcast now and go watch them and then come back to this point um, because Alex is about to spoil everything in about 10 seconds uh, in 5, 4, 3, 2, go for it. Ed becomes a zombie, but Sean keeps him as a pet, and then the NWA is like this murderous cult, but then the swan wins. And then it's aliens, but robots, but also robots who are not robots. Well, you know, Alex, do you know what robot actually means? Uh, is it Slavic? Yeah, it means slave, and they're not really slaves. Well, if you say so, but they kind of seem like robots. Yeah, they're definitely robots. Definitely robots. Uh, <laughs> and they okay, kind of so, are slaves too. Like that—that's the funniest part. Is yeah, that's the whole point. They keep denying high, it, but that's that's all they are. They're slaves to this high, high, high mind, man. Don't Starbucks us, man. Don't Starbucks. Can't Starbucks the whole human race. Which is funny because um, I kind of like Starbucks, but you know. You know yeah. Whatever, whatever. Not so if you've seen the right movies, now. you know what we're talking about. Um. And that's one of the things that we do want to talk about is the fact that the this this zombie slash hive mind theme runs through all three of these films. Um, so they're they're like I kind of see them as three different kinds of zombie movies because in Hot Fuzz we have um, the NWA, which is the Neighborhood Watch Alliance, our um, kind of organization which looks over the town and uh, you know kind of is supposed to clean it up and keep people out of trouble and stuff like that but really just ends up killing anybody that they slightly don't like um and just murdering them to get them out of the way uh which is this literal cult where people are chanting and you know they they all say the same thing for the greater good uh for the greater good at some point they can't even you know think for themselves all they're thinking of is how what what do we do to keep our town the uh, number the town number of the one year village of England? Yeah. Um, and then in the world's end, they go back to their hometown, New uh, Newton Haven, uh, and basically the entire um, town has been. They've taken all the citizens and replaced them with robot versions of themselves, which are young and never age and anything like this. And the aliens who have come down and invaded are basically trying to assimilate everyone to be, you know, the same person, the same mindset, the same ideas and everything. So it turns into this, uh, this other kind of zombie where nobody can think for themselves because everyone's mind is literally connected. That's another point in the film is that, uh, they're basically the internet and everyone has the same thoughts and the same ideas and everything. Um, and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost characters have to kind of rebel against that. And eventually the aliens decide that it's a hopeless cause. 
Yeah, and even you know, even if you go back to Shaun of the Dead before um, uh, before the the plague actually hits, or virus, or I'm not sure what to call it because they never really explain it in the Shaun in Shaun of the Dead. In fact, that's kind of a running gag towards the end. Um, is that whenever people try to explain it, they keep getting cut off by convenient circumstances. But before the yeah, I think there whenever, was some kind of some kind of like one-off thing about an asteroid or something falling to earth and causing people to get sick or something, but it's not, yeah. it's not a, it does not important in the film yeah, at all. Not at all. Not at all. But, uh, the, the point I was, I was getting to before I distracted myself, um, what was that before, um, people even start turning into zombies, they're kind of already portrayed as zombies, which is, um, it, a funny way of foreshadowing, but it's also kind of a, a commentary on how you live your your day to day life, and also the repetitive fashion that Sean's been living his life, just doing the same thing every day. So you see people waiting in line at the bus stop, and they 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 look like zombies. You see people on the bus staring at uh, magazines or listening to music, and they they look like zombies. Um, not in that they have zombie makeup on, but they have that blank gaze, mouth kind of hanging open. Um, the Just way going that, through the motions of life. <laughs> yeah, the way that I actually see people on the subway every day is is how they mm-hmm. look in the film. And this kind of crops up again in the world's end, uh, where we kind of, as we're being introduced to the to the f- five friends, um, as as uh, Gary King is going to recruit them for this second round of the pub crawl we kind of get this idea that some of them are almost in this uh, robotic phase. So uh, Martin Freeman's character has his little Bluetooth headset in and he's all constantly connected to his clients and talking to them um, and just kind of in this corporate world. And one of the other friends has kind of taken a job from his father. So he's kind of, you know, just following in footsteps instead of doing his own thing. Um, so we get we get hints of that and then they have to be the individual's um, after they find out that the whole town has become the same person, essentially. Yeah, so um, we can't talk about Edgar Wright without talking about uh, visual comedy. Like we talked about earlier, there's um, a lot of the humor in, in Edgar Wright films don't come from people saying jokes. Um, they, they kind of come from the way information is revealed. You know, a quick pan over to a character or a quick quick cut over to a character and so there's there's a lot of these to talk about so uh we're going to try to get through as many of them as we can and, and kind of show the unique ways that you can do humor um utilizing the full range of a film which is you know audio and visual so not just spoken jokes but visual jokes too um and I think the one I wanted to talk about first is uh, fence gags because, you know, we have to talk about fence gags. Yeah, so in each of these movies, there's a point where the characters have to jump over uh, some some kind of low fence, like a garden fence, um, at some point. And in Shaun of the Dead, uh, Shaun hops the fence, but that section that he grabs onto just, like, falls straight down. So... You know, it's unexpected. We're thinking he's just going to jump over it, but it's just like... So it's kind of one of those unexpected shock kind of jokes. And then it becomes a running thing um, where in Hot Fuzz, 
Simon Pegg's character, who's the, you know, actual cop, he's really good at what he does, ends up hopping like five fences in a row. And then Nick Frost's character goes to to hop the fences and he just like bowls right through them. <laughs> he just like falls through one um, through several panels or whatever. And then in The World's End, again, Simon Pegg's character goes to hop a fence and just the entire fence falls over. So it's this kind of running thing where when it comes up, you can see it coming, but you don't know how Edgar Wright is going to spin it for that particular movie. Yeah, it gets funnier with uh, repetition, um, for sure, and once you're in the know. So by the time you see it in The World's End, you, it's really, really funny. Um, but it's also, I mean, that's not to say that's not funny in Shaun of the Dead. It definitely is. Um, and it also shows that, you know, a good uh, Buster Keaton-esque uh, practical gag yeah. is never out of fashion. Don't underestimate the value of those. They're, they're definitely worth it. it. They also have me wondering... Uh, what happened in either Edgar Wright or Simon Pegg's life that this is like a go-to gag? Like, did yeah, it just come up jumping. in conversation one day, or is there like some really interesting conversation uh, story some from backstory? Yeah, like their college days when they were like really smashed one night, and they're like, "I bet you can't jump over that fence, man!" And then uh, someone tried, and it, they failed. Yeah. Um, another thing that happens in all of these films that Edgar Wright has come to be known for is his uh, montage editing. Um, so really mundane things, Edgar Wright is able to cut really quick shots of, you know, each stage of it. So, you know, the entirety of moving from London to the country can take about 30 seconds and still be done in a funny way rather than, you know, throwing some pop music and having some uh, helicopter stock footage of whatever city he's moving to kind of tell us what's happening. Yeah, yeah. It's a way to keep those things uh, interesting. And it's another opportunity to put um, some humor back in. Like you were talking about with Hot Fuzz, like um, probably the funniest way you could possibly do a uh, paperwork scene or uh, make it interesting is to do it in those those quick cut um, montage styles. Yeah, make it look really intense when it's really an extremely mundane <laughs> uh, yeah. kind of thing. And it can take on some added meaning. Like in uh, The World's End, they um, he does it repeatedly whenever anybody's pouring a beer at a bar, um, filling yeah. it up from the from the draft. Is um, those those quick cuts with uh, with with the sound effects of a beer being poured is actually quite beautiful and it takes on meaning as as they go on from bar to bar and um uh gary king becomes a little more desperate to finish um and they visit some bars that don't even have uh bartenders in them yeah and a lot of the the humor from those montages comes from the fact that nick frost character doesn't drink and and the way they do the sound editing like you were saying that they made this really like deep rumbly sound for every time they pour the beer so it's and then when it gets to the water, it goes, Psh. so it's just this uh, kind of emphasizing the fact that Gary King definitely uh, sees Nick Frost as kind of a wimp for only being able to drink water. Yeah. Which actually, yeah. I didn't get until this time I watched it, the fact that uh, Nick Frost has some weird monologue about, um, about, you know what takes courage? Walking into a bar full of, you know, rugby players and all these really tough guys and ordering a water 
that is tough. And at the end of the movie, Gary King walks in with his robot buddies and orders five waters in this bar full of really tough looking uh, vigilante kind of guys. Oh, um, yeah. So yeah. even that gets paid off. All these, like we were saying, all these little one liner things um, come back around. Like nothing is uh, put in there accidentally or just um, just for the sake of filling space. Everything has a purpose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And something we kind of mentioned earlier, but um, we do want to expound upon, is um, having things enter inter or exit frame in a really interesting way. Um, Edgar Wright is really conscious of the rule uh, that applies when you're, when you're doing anything with a camera, um, is that the world outside of the frame doesn't exist. So anything outside of the frame is complete blank, uh, to the audience's information they don't have. So if you have uh, something enter the, the frame unexpectedly or um, something that is, is, you know, directly opposing whatever the character is saying, then, then it can be really funny. So there's this part in Shaun of the Dead where Shaun is at the store and one of his employees... The store that he works at, yeah. Yeah, the store that he works at. He doesn't own it. Um because that would mean he has his life together. But anyway, one of his employees is challenging him, um, and Sean is trying to explain that he doesn't let uh, his social life and his work life interfere with each other. And that is promptly interrupted, this is a close-up on Sean, by the way, by a character off-screen saying, um, Liz for you, which is his girlfriend, um, and then putting the phone in frame next to his ear, um, right at that point in time. So the, the thing entering the frame unexpectedly in and of itself would be pretty funny. Um, but the fact that it directly just juxtapose, uh, juxtaposes this thing that Sean is trying to make a point of is even funnier. Um, you know, you, you have this information in frame of Sean denying that he lets his social life and work life mix and then enter uh, frame left, um, a phone completely denying that which which ends up being pretty funny and then it becomes a gag over the course of all three of these movies and scott pilgrim if you go watch that another edgar wright film um where you know a character is speaking and then suddenly a phone enters the screen or cake or whatever or whatever yeah another gag that's used repeatedly um or a technique that edgar wright likes to use is music um whether it's you know, kind of an ironic use, like Ed blasting hard metal music while everyone's trying to focus on surviving the zombie apocalypse. Or, um, you know, at the end of that movie, when they're playing a Queen song and beating a zombie with pool cues to the beat of the music. Um, yeah, and there's other points where, um, you know, in Hot Fuzz, he's going to work at a fair and he wants to be, you know, on the big murder case but they keep putting him on inane jobs like you know swan hunting and uh and swan capturing no hunting okay yeah (laughs) swan retrieving and uh working security at the the town fair and there's a song that's something like out in the country blah 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 and uh so you know his his use of music is very intentional and uh, just from following Edgar Wright on Twitter and the fact that he has a lot of um, 
music video history, I kind of get the sense that Edgar Wright knows just about as much about music as he does about movies. So that's all of his music choices are just as intentional um, as any of his other comedy choices or writing choices or anything like that. Um, and that kind of pulls us into his new movie, which was just announced a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so uh, coming out June 28th is Edgar Wright's newest film, uh, Baby Driver, uh, free plug of the week. Um, yeah, so it's it's all about music and driving, and it is also in a, a movie set in America, like Scott Pilgrim. So we're going to see a bit of a different cast in this one. Um, but hopefully all those classic Edgar Wright touches that uh, make his film so great. And if the trailers are anything to judge by, I think we will see those. Yeah, so I think that, you know, it's it's not part of this trilogy. It's a completely separate thing. So some of the things that kind of the way the editing was done and things that defined this trilogy as its own visual and thematic trilogy might be absent. But just the fact that Edgar Wright's ideas are always so unique and so intentional that we should be able to still see traces of, you know, his exceptional um, eye for editing and uh, framing. And even though it doesn't seem like a, it's not a strictly comedic film, it's definitely more inspired by classic 90s heist films uh, like Reservoir Dogs and Heat and stuff like that. Um, we're, we'll, I'm sure that there will be you know, unexpected things that have comedic tint to them, even if it's mostly an action film. And like we were saying, the fact that Edgar Wright is so familiar with pretty much every kind of genre and the action genre, it'll be really interesting to see someone who's steeped in that knowledge be able to pull off his own his own kind of story. Yeah, yeah. And I think if, um, if we land on anything this week, it should be... Um, this idea that um, Edgar Wright's films feel so unique and they, so fun and uh, so interesting to watch repeatedly. Um, and the reason that I think they feel so unique is that he, he has all of this film knowledge. He's, you know, he has a list of his thousand uh, favorite movies and I'm sure he's watched many thousands of other movies. Um, so... N- like we're we're looking at these movies and we can rattle off all of these references to these films uh to other films that he's watched and other works of art that he's he's consumed and studied and and we're seeing references that we're not even getting to exactly um, like that another thing we um, talk about the po- podcast is this you know recycling of art like you're taking in references that you don't even realize as references and then if you reference that it's kind of this this big chain of um you know, the best kind of telephone where art just becomes more unique the more it references other art in a weird way. Yeah, um, I really wish I could remember where I heard this, but it was a pretty genius uh, sentiment that if you ever think you've come up with something completely unique, you probably just don't know what references you're making. And, you know, I think that's one of the keys to... um, to Edgar Wright's work is that he's he's so versed in uh, cinema and cinema history and the art and the craft of how to make a movie and how everybody has made movies. Um, he's seen what's worked, what's worked and what hasn't worked. He knows what he likes and what he doesn't like, and you can take all of those things from all of those places and make his his 
his own style, his own brand, which he clearly has done. Um, and, and, you know, that's one of our goals through this podcast is to learn as much as we can about as much as, as many different kinds of cinema as we can from as many different uh, creators as we can, um, who we like and we think their work is good. Um, and we want to learn from and put that into our own work moving forward. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm excited to see Baby Driver and see, you know, how some of the things we've talked about uh, on this episode might play into that and uh, how Edgar Wright has grown and what kind of differences uh, he, he brings to it outside of, like we were saying, this visual and thematic trilogy. Yeah. And I'm going to be watching to see if anybody eats ice cream in this movie. Yeah. We'll have to see. Um, <laughs> okay. But anyway, let's talk about next week. Next week, we uh, are talking about what you guys want to watch. We ran another poll on our Twitter account, and this time we asked you guys to tell us what trilogy we should watch. And you guys voted for Toy Story. So we will be watching the, uh, the three extant Toy Story films. Uh, Toy Story 1 from 1995, Toy Story 2 from 99, and Toy Story 3 from 2010. And there is another one coming, but as long as it's still just a trilogy, we will treat it as such. Yeah, we gotta hurry up and make that podcast. <laughs> yep, uh, but I'm excited. These are, you know, movies that we've grown up with, and uh, also the first ever computer animated feature film. Uh, so there's lots of film history uh, that goes along with these movies and sentimental value. So it should be a good episode. For sure. So be sure to come back next week and check it out. But that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to stuff that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.wordpress.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next week. All right, see ya. <laughs>